book of Jonah in this series we're calling Overboard. And so we're going to pick it up this morning where we left off. If you have a Bible, pull it out. If not, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 again, page 753 in the pew Bibles. Last week, Pastor Luke got us launched and he talked about disobedience, about how when we look at Jonah, God wants us to see his disobedient heart, and then he wants us to understand that we might also have a similar kind of heart. And so today we're going to pick up where Pastor Luke left off, and we're going to talk about lessons for overcoming disobedience. What does it look like, and how, what do we need to know if we want our hearts to be back in line with God's plans and his will for our lives? So lessons for overcoming disobedience Jonah chapter 1. We're going to back all the way up to the very beginning of the chapter and do a little review. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, right in the middle of verse 3, there's some really important information that would have jumped out to Jonah's original readers that we might miss. We're told this. After paying the fare, Jonah went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but in the ancient world, this would have been a very standout piece of information, and here's why. People did not have money back then. And when I say people didn't have money, I'm not saying like people didn't have a lot of money, like some people had a little, some people had a lot. No, people, there literally wasn't money. At this point in world history, in this region of the world, money was actually a very new concept. People didn't just like drive down to Target, pull out their wallet, and pay for things. No, money wasn't really readily available. They, they traded for things. This was a barter economy, not a currency economy. It was like, you know, my eggs for your wheat, or I made this chair, and I'll trade you for that blanket that you wove for me. This, this is how the world worked. Only at this point, the very privileged actually had currency. And so the point is this. Very few people would have been able to do what Jonah does here. And that's pay for a ticket right out of his pocket. Just that simple statement tells us something about Jonah. The author wants us to know that he is a man of significant financial means. He buys a ticket and he boards a ship. But not just any ship. A ship headed to Tarshish. We already had the question, right? Hopefully you're focused. He buys a, a ticket to Tarshish. And last week, Pastor Luke did a great job of showing us that Tarshish um, is actually in the opposite direction of Nineveh. This is Jonah doing exactly the opposite of what God has called him to do. But there's something else significant about the fact that Jonah chooses Tarshish because this city had a, rep had a reputation. Now, you know in, in our world, in our society... We have sayings, little phrases that mean something, but the words themselves don't mean exactly what the phrase means. We call these little phrases idioms. 
Do you guys know what idioms are, right? Idioms are little phrases where the words don't make sense, but they mean something to all of us. We all sort of culturally understand what's being said. I'll give you a few examples. Cool as a cucumber. If we say someone's cool as a cucumber, what do we mean? Their body temperature has dropped. No. This is a person who responds well or calmly under pressure. They're cool as a cucumber. Here's another one. Play it by ear. We're just going to play it by ear. That's really weird when you think about it. What does that mean? Well, we all know it means we don't need a plan. We're just going to figure it out as we go. Or they were like a fish out of water. Well, a fish out of water just means they were really uncomfortable in this given situation. You could tell they were uncomfortable. Or beat around the bush. Don't beat around the bush. Now, again, super strange. But to beat around the bush means to not be direct, not to just say it plainly or clearly to avoid speaking directly. Now, sometimes when it comes to idioms, a city, like a a well-known place, will develop a reputation for something, and an idiom will develop out of that. And so sometimes we have cities that are involved in idioms. I'll give you a couple modern-day examples. When in Rome... You ever hear somebody say that? They just say, when in Rome. And we all know, or most of us anyway, know that that just means... I'm going to fit in. I'm just going to act like the people around me. When in Rome, act like the Romans. I'm just trying to kind of blend in with everyone else. Or here's another one. Faster than a New York minute. You ever heard this phrase? A New York minute? What does that mean? Well, New York is a city that's really fast-paced, has a reputation for everything moving really quickly there. And so a New York minute means it's going to happen really fast. Like minutes are even faster in New York than everywhere else. Um, And this all has a point. Because in Jonah's day, the city of Tarshish had a reputation, and a little phrase, a little idiom emerged that everyone would have understood. And it's the little phrase, ship of Tarshish, which is hard to say. Say it ten times fast. Ship of Tarshish, ship of Tarshish, like tongue twister. But it was a phrase back then, and it was easier to say in Hebrew. And so here's our first Kahoot question, or our second Kahoot question today. So get your phones out, get ready. What did the phrase, ship of Tarshish, symbolize in Jonah's day? Because it's right here at the beginning of our story. Was it, did it mean a fun adventure? Did it mean fear of God? Did it mean pride in one's wealth? Or did it mean a blessing from heaven? What do you think ship of Tarshish was an idiom for in Jonah's day. Take your best guess. Two, one. Pride in one's wealth is correct. Tarshish was a thriving port city that was very wealthy. You see, shipping goods over the seas was, had just sort of emerged in Jonah's day. And so Tarshish was perfectly perfectly positioned to do really well in terms of imports and exports. And so there was a lot of wealth flowing through this city. And thus, ship of Tarshish became a slang term for wealth and material prosperity that led to prideful rebellion against God. And, And we see this actually in other places in the Bible. Here's an example, Ezekiel chapter 27. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the seas. Your wealth will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. 
In other words, Ezekiel is saying, your reliance on your, on your wealth will lead to your downfall. Your arrogance because of your prosperity will lead to you going down. Or, or from the book of Isaiah, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. For every ship of Tarshish, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. You see, ship of Tarshish was a way of saying, your wealth and privilege and prosperity has created a prideful arrogance in you, so you no longer think you need God as much as you truly do. So when Jonah in this story buys a ticket and boards a ship of Tarshish, the author is telling us that perhaps, perhaps Jonah's disobedience is a result of being a wealthy, privileged, prideful, arrogant person. And so the question this morning, friends, is how about us? Because again, God wants us to see ourselves in this character. He wants to say, you are more like Jonah than you care to admit. And so how about us? How about you? Has your wealth and privilege and comfort caused you to forget how much you truly need to rely on the Lord? Because here's, here's the hard truth that we sometimes don't want to acknowledge, especially as American Christians, especially as Christians who live on the west side of Portland, in Cedar Mill, in Beaverton, in fairly affluent, comfortable neighborhoods. Here's what we often don't want to realize. Wealth and privilege make it harder to follow and obey God, not easier. With every dime you get, with every luxury you buy, with every comfort and ease that comes into your life, it is harder to follow and obey God, not easier. And, and, and I'll ask it this way. When was the last time? Here's a, here's a way of determining. Has my wealth, has my privilege, has the comfort of my world sort of infringed upon my willingness to obey God? Here's another way of asking that question. When was the last time... You, call, you were called and went on a mission to Nineveh. When was the last time you stepped out of the comfort of your insulated life and did something that was hard and messy and risky and uncomfortable? Because that's often where God takes us. And our wealth wants to take us the exact opposite way. Here's lesson number one for overcoming disobedience. We need to understand, we need to be very aware that wealth and privilege can create arrogance in our hearts that will make it easier for us to run away from God and create security for ourselves. I don't need to follow you, God. I've got this thing handled. I'm doing just fine on my own. Look around. Look at my house. Look at my life. Look at my stuff. Look at my car. Look at my kids. God, I'll let you know when I need you. And the Lord says that's not how it works. Because self-created security is ultimately really no security at all. It's fleeting and it is unstable. And Jonah and his sailing buddies are about to get a lesson in this very reality. Verse 4. Then the Lord. And I, and I just love how that kind of just punches you in the face. Because anytime you read those words, then the Lord, you know something's about to go down. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. 
Friends, lesson number two is a simple one, but it's a significant one, and here it is. God often uses storms to show us the frailty of our earthly securities. God often uses storms to show us the frailty of our earthly securities. You see, Jonah says, you know, I don't need to follow you, God. I don't want to follow you. I'll just choose the good life. I'll go down the easy path. I'll find my hope and security in the fact that I can just buy a ticket to Tarshish. I'm doing my own thing. And then what happens? This storm hits, and now all of a sudden there is not enough money in the world to create security for Jonah. His, his wealth, his privilege, his prosperity, that's not going to help him now. And it's very clear. You see, the storms of our lives, friends, they have a way. They just have a way of reminding us and showing us and forcing us again to see that our only true hope and security can be found in Jesus. Our only true hope and security can be found in God Almighty. Some of you in this room... Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. You are, you're facing something today. You're battling with something. A great wind is blowing through your life. For some of you in this room, that's you. And I want to be really clear to say that I'm not saying that God caused this storm in your life, but I do know this. He wants to use it to help you. He wants to use it to help you become like Jesus and make him known. That is the mission of our church. That's what we as a church family say the highest and most important calling in this world is to become like Jesus, to have him form and shape our character, and then to, that he would allow us and use us to make him known in this world, that other people would be formed and shaped like him. You see, and here's the irony we do all these things to try to help us as a community become like Jesus and make him known. And we're, we pray and we read our Bibles and we get in groups and we come to church. We do all these things. And yet, the most effective thing to helping us become like Jesus and make him known are often the storms we go through in our life. They're, it's often the things that we could never do on our own. We could never conjure up these situations And yet God uses the storms of our life to help us accomplish our mission more than anything else. And so I want you, if you're in the middle of a storm today, or if maybe there's one on the horizon, to remember this. Don't miss the fact that God is right in the middle of that storm with you. Don't miss the opportunity to stop and ask this question. God In the middle of this storm, whatever it is for you, what are you up to here? It's a great question. God, what are you up to? God, what do you want to do in me? God, where does this difficulty that I'm facing create opportunity? Opportunity for me to grow. Opportunity for your kingdom to advance. Because God, I believe, you have to believe, you have to know that God is in the middle of every single storm and he will use it. And the sailors can sense it. The sailors in this story are the ones who start to understand God is up to something here. The prophet who should know this misses it, but the sailors know. Here's Kahoot question number three. While the sailors are praying and throwing cargo over the ship, what is Jonah doing? What was Jonah doing during the storm? Pull out your phones, see if you can get the right answer. Went up to a 1,000 points. Praying 
Was Jonah praying? Was he watching his favorite Netflix show? Which is what some of us do during storms. Was he reading? Was he sleeping? What do you think Jonah was up to during this storm? Four, three, two, one. Survey says sleeping. You guys are cheating and reading ahead. I knew it. I knew you were cheaters. Yes, he's sleeping. It's right here in verse 5. Here we go. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? I love how the old King James version interprets this passage. How can you sleep? Old King James says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? (laughs) And I think that really captures the passion and heart of the captain a little better. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Like, what are you thinking, man? And he says, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So Jonah did. He cried out to God, repented, promised to go to Nineveh, and the Lord stopped the storm. The end. (laughs) Is that how it goes? You see, what the author is doing here is he wants you to notice this is how it should go. This is the moment where the the whole story should just get wrapped up and should end. But it doesn't go this way. Notice at this point, friends, that Jonah does nothing. He's doing nothing. He's just sleeping even after he's challenged. What meanest thou, O sleeper? He's not doing a thing. In verse 7, it tells us the, the sailors cast lots. In other words, they roll dice. They gamble to try and figure out why is this happening to us? Why has this storm come? And God even uses the sailors gambling to say, Jonah, the problem is you, right? The lot falls to Jonah. And in the midst of all this going on, what does Jonah never do? He never cries out to God. He never says, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. I'll go to Nineveh if you want me to. I was wrong to run away. Turn this ship around. He doesn't do that. And here's lesson number three. Disobedience always requires repentance. Disobedience always requires repentance. And and we're going to see in the story that Jonah's going to get about half of that right. And I think it's another place where we're a lot like Jonah, where often we get about half of the repentance equation right. Now, kids, repentance is a big word. It's a big Bible word, but it's really a very simple thing. Repentance means two very simple things. It means A, acknowledge what you've done wrong. Just confess it, just admit it, just own it. And that is a hard thing sometimes. Sometimes we don't like to admit it when we're wrong. When we've done something wrong, when we're doing something wrong, that's even hard for me at times. Just ask my wife. But then there's another step. So we acknowledge what we've done wrong, but then we must take action to fix it. Repentance always involves acknowledgement and action. Repentance is saying, I'm going the wrong way, and now I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to start to go a new direction. Verse 8, so they asked him, so the sailors asked Jonah, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? 
They knew he was running away from the Lord because he already had told them so. Notice that little footnote. They knew he was running away from them. He'd already told them so. See, Jonah's already done half the equation. He's already acknowledged that he's disobeying. He, he is blatantly disobeying the Lord here. It's not like, oh, I didn't know. I went the wrong way. Like, oh, you know, what does it mean that I didn't go to Nineveh? No, he's like, I'm running from God. I'm disobeying. I'm going the opposite direction. He says it with his mouth. But here's the problem. He acknowledges, but he never acts. He confesses, but he never changes. Here's Kahoot question number four. What does Jonah ask the sailors to do next? At this point in the story, he's acknowledged, he's running from God. What does he ask them to do next? Does he say, throw me overboard? Does he, say, does he pray and ask for forgiveness? Does he help the sailors row? Does he ask for the ship to be turned around? What do you think? Three, two, one. Yes, you're right. He asks to be thrown overboard. The title of our series may have given that one away, I know. Um, listen, listen to how it goes. It says, verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars about what's happening at this point in the story. Is Jonah repenting? Is Jonah still rebelling? I, I think the answer is somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle. He's not repenting. He's not fully, like, owning it and taking action to turn around. But he's also not rebelling anymore. He's kind of like, it's my fault. He's, he's open about the whole thing. It kind of reminds me of um, one of my children, my son, Dax, um, who's here this morning. He's in middle school now, but when he was little, when he was a younger kid, uh, he was, like every little boy, he would make a mess in his room, just t toys out everywhere. And I would find his room a mess, and I'd go say, Dax, come here. And we'd go to his room, and I'd say, this room is a mess. I need you to come in here. I need you to clean up this room. And Dax was a good kid. He was a really compliant kid. And he'd say, okay, Dad. And he'd cruise in there, and he'd just confess, yeah, I made a mess, and I, I'll clean it up. And then I'd go away, and I'd come back some minutes later. And what would I find? All you moms know. Dax sitting in the middle of the floor playing with all the toys that were out from earlier, right? And I'd, I'd say, Dax, what are you doing? And he'd say, um, clean, cleaning my room? And I'd say, no, no, you're not. You're not cleaning your room. But this is not cleaning your room. You see, Dax had the right words, but he didn't have the action. He had words, but he lacked action. Sorry, kid, I never ran that illustration past you, so I, I'm, you know, we'll talk about it later. And you can work it out in therapy and with Jonah and the whale. It'll be fine. Anyway, um, he's a really clean, great kid now. You know, he's always obedient, so he's the best. Anyway, um, but, but Jonah is a lot like this, right? He acknowledges he's disobeying God, but he's just not willing to turn around. He's not willing to say, turn the ship around. I'll go. He's not willing to surrender. Verse 13, instead... So he says, throw me into the sea. Just throw me overboard. I just, I just kind of resign. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Now, there's an entire sermon in that one line called the futility of rowing against God. <laughs> right? They did their best to row against God, and yet they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. 
Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Now, listen to this, because here is how scene two of Jonah concludes. This is is like the author's sentence to wrap up this whole section. Jonah's tossed overboard, the sea calms, and then it says this to conclude the, first, the second scene. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Here's lesson number four. Obedience flows out of knowing God is both powerful and personal. And this is the most significant point of the morning. See, the sailors in this story are converted. The sailors repent. The sailors' hearts are changed. God gets from the sailors what he's after in Jonah. You know, see, sometimes our storms, God uses the storms in our lives to impact and change the lives of others. It's a wonderful thing. And the sailors, they have now, because of Jonah, seen the power of God. They have seen, like the disciples saw with Jesus in the boat that one day, that even the wind and waves obey him. They can see how great and mighty and awesome Jonah's God is. But there's also another thing that happens in this story. It's a bit more subtle to us, but it would have been very apparent to the original readers. The sailors don't just see that God is powerful. They also experience how personal he is and wants to be with them. Check this out. At the the beginning, when the storm begins, it says that the sailors each cried out to his own God. You'll read that right there in verse 5, right? And that little word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And Elohim is the generic word for God. It's just kind of like any God, a random God. Each prayed to his own God, little g God. But then, as the storm continues, and as they talk to Jonah, and as he tells them about the Lord who created the land and the sea, all of a sudden, the language of these sailors shifts, and it's a notable shift. It says in verse 14 that they cried to the Lord. No longer Elohim. Now there's a new word there. And then in verse 16, it says, At this the men greatly feared The Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, right? And that word Lord in all caps is this name for God, Yehovah. Sometimes we pronounce it Jehovah. It's Yehovah. It's the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the Jewish title for the one true God. This is a very specific and personal name for God. So God has gone from being this generic, far-off being to this very personal uh, Lord in the lives of these sailors. And the idea here, friends, is that these sailors make vows to God. They determine to live lives of obedience to him. You see, their hearts, their lives are turning towards obedience in this moment because now they know that God is both powerful and personal. And the final point here, friends, is that true obedience flows out of understanding that that is who God is. True obedience is not trying harder to follow the rules, trying harder to be a good person. You can do that for a while, but ultimately you will fail. True obedience comes from this knowledge that God is close, that he is intimate, that he is personal, and that he is powerful, more powerful than we can possibly imagine. That's 
where obedience comes from. Your heart, your heart is rebellious, but when you know God, when he comes close, and when you think and dwell on and remember how close he is and how strong he is, your heart will move from rebellion towards obedience, from a Jonah life to a sailor's life. And that's why every week, friends, we come to these tables to remember and declare these two truths about our God. That's why every week we come to these communion tables to align our hearts again with the will of God in this world, to remember that he is so very personal, that he loves you so much that he sent his own son. You ever wonder if God's close? You ever wonder if he cares? Well, let me tell you how much he cares. He sent his one and only son to die and pay the price for your sin that you might be set free, that you can be in relationship with him again. That's how much he loves you. That's how personal he is. But not only that, this meal also reminds us that he is powerful. In this meal, we remember that he's so powerful that not even death could beat him, that the grave could not hold him, that our God went into the tomb, took on death, kicked his hiney, rolled the stone away, and emerged on the third day. You see, even the greatest forces in this world are no match for our God. He's not just personal. He is the powerful one. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's what this meal says. This is not just a religious moment. This is not just something we do week to week. This is a declaration to your soul. This is a reminder to your heart that we have a God who's powerful and personal, who loves you and is with you, who is greater than any storm this world could throw at you. And friends, if you're in the middle of a storm these days, that is good news. And so as we pre uh, prepare to come to the table, let me just ask you to consider a few things. First of all, is there a Tarshish attitude in your heart? Have you grown complacent? Have you grown distant from God because... The honest reality is in this world, you just have plenty. You just have a lot. You just have enough. You don't really need him. Is there a Tarshish, arrogant, prideful, God, I'm just going to put you on the shelf attitude in you? Are you resistant to walking the road to Nineveh, the challenges, the messy, dirty places in this world because your life has really become about comfort and safety and enjoyment? If so... Bring that attitude to the table and ask God to crucify that in you. Maybe this morning you need to think about repentance. Maybe there's an action or an attitude or behavior in your life and you know exactly what it is because the Holy Spirit is speaking it to you right now. And maybe the first step is just to acknowledge that. God, I know it's wrong. God, I just confess it. I've been justifying it. I've been sort of rationalizing it for a long time, but now I just need to make this statement. I have been in the wrong. I am in rebellion. I am being disobedient in this area. Or, or maybe you're here and you've been doing that for a while. You've been saying that for a long time and God is saying, all right, we've talked about it long enough. Now it's time to repent. Now it's time to take action. Now it's time to turn around. Turn around and walk on the path that I have for you. Friends, this morning, if you're going through a storm, bring that storm to this table and remember this. 
God sees you in that storm. He cares for you in that storm. He loves you. He's the most personal being you've ever met. And, and he has the power to not only defeat that storm, but to get you through it and to use it in your life in ways that you can't even imagine. So wherever you're at today, allow this story of Jonah to not just become a story you heard once in Sunday school, but a story that God might use to change your heart and your life and move you back to being the child of obedience that he longs for you to be. I'm gonna pray and then the tables will be open. Whenever your heart's ready, spend some time with God. And whenever your heart's ready, you can come forward and you can receive the bread and the cup on your own. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving rebellious people, people who go their own way and do their own thing and are stubborn about being right and are resistant to change and who wrestle with the same things over and over again, Lord, that's me and I need you and we need you. Thank you for your great love that covers all of that, that says there's another chance, there's another opportunity. Remind us, God, of who you are. May the reality of your greatness and your goodness change us from the inside out, that people would see something more than just good rule-following religious people in us, but they would see the work of your love and your grace and your Holy Spirit in our lives. That's our prayer. That's what we long for. We truly want to be people becoming like you so that we can make you known, not ourselves. That's, that's what we pray today, God. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name.